Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights in transport from around the globe. I'm Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions, and today myself and Chris Bichette of Bolden are talking to Jeff Preston. Jeff is a lifetime advocate for accessibility and as the Associate Professor of Disability Studies at the King's University College in London, Ontario, fake London. He tackles how disability is discussed and represented in popular culture. His advocacy translates to travel and how we can better enable those with disabilities to better access the communities and beyond. Welcome, Jeff. If maybe you could take a few moments to uh, give us your background and tell everybody about yourself and where you come from and what you do. I guess my, my formal official title is uh, I'm a professor of disability studies uh, at King's University College uh, at King's. I'm teaching classes on uh, really across the board. Uh, I'm working on things around sort of general introductory stuff for disability studies. Uh, but then also I get into more of my research area, which is totally uh, focused on representations of disability and popular culture. Uh, how we talk about disability, how we represent it, the stories that we tell and why we tell it. Uh, that's a, a big part of my research agenda. Uh, and I also teach classes and do research and work on policy uh, around accessibility, specifically uh, about how we legislate disability, how we construct disability through policies and rules and structure, and how we could do that differently, uh, how we could do a better job of making the world a little bit less disabling. We come from a, a transport background, transit background, and, and communication, so we'll certainly uh, cross paths with uh, your take on those subjects. But uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your background. You have a very storied background. Um, you 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 have a PhD in media studies. Um, you've done some things to gain a lot of attention for people with disabilities in this country. Maybe you could take us through a little bit of that. Yeah. So when I'm not in when I'm not in my professional mode, uh, I uh, pretty much from my birth, uh, I've been a bit of a professional troublemaker. Uh, I'm very good at making trouble. Uh, and uh, causing trouble for people that are maybe not doing things the way that they should be. Uh, I gave my first, um, I guess, speech uh, when I was about three years old uh, at a charity volleyball tournament and didn't really stop talking after that. Uh, this sort of all culminated when I got into university and I was having a lot of trouble getting around. Uh, I was really struggling to get from point A to point B from uh, getting to class and getting off campus to go out to, with friends to the pub uh, it was it was really, really difficult. Services just were not there, or at least they weren't designed for somebody to live an independent life, in my opinion. And this really all culminated then in 2008 when I decided to do something about it. Uh, and it was that year that I took my electric wheelchair and I set off on the road uh, from London, Ontario, 650 kilometers to the nation's capital in Ottawa, stopping along the way to try to raise awareness about the lack of accessible transportation. Uh, to try to start a conversation about why we aren't doing more to try and enable, enable people with disabilities to access their communities, uh, whether it is municipally, but also to access their country and getting from city to city or province to province. All of those things being incredibly difficult for different reasons for people with disabilities. And that uh, did a lot to generate a lot of publicity to people who don't think about these issues day to day. I have a, a, a personal background with that. My father was in a wheelchair for more than 30 years. My mother was in a wheelchair for more than 20 years. And just going out and about so many people don't think of the simple little issues because it's not in their in their day-to-day -day routine. 
Uh, you know, we're, we're approaching the holidays now. So retailers will throw a whole bunch of stuff on the floor in the aisles to get as much exposure for all the retail stuff. And it's impossible to get a wheelchair through the aisles just because people don't think this way. How, how do you, and, I, and I'm sure, well, I know you've got a number of examples, but how do you raise awareness with the people who don't live in that day to day? Because they're not thinking about these simple issues, never mind the getting across the country. I, I think that ultimately any type of action like this, and particularly around disability, uh, there's a bunch of different targets. There's a, a bunch of different groups of people that you need to reach in different ways to try to raise the consciousness of, of life with a disability. So on the one hand, you're trying to reach lay people. Right? You're trying to reach people that don't have a lot of experience with disability, um, people that are just kind of going about their lives. And unless they encounter disability themselves or someone in their family has a disability, they may not actually ever understand uh, what it's like to live with a disability uh, in this current cultural uh, moment. As you're trying to reach those people, and those people are a very difficult population to reach because by and large, they don't believe disability is something that has anything to do with them. Um, they feel like that's someone else's issue, someone else's problem, and they mostly just kind of stick, stay out of it, right? I, I liken it to a, a death of, of a, a close family member. When somebody passes away and it's some other family, you go and you pay your respects and you leave and you come back and, and live your life. When it happens to you, it's deeply differing. Yeah, it feels different and it changes the world. But I think generally we, we try to stay out of it. You know, I, I like to refer to, uh, there's an old episode of South Park uh, that was focused on, on the disabled characters, Timmy and Jimmy. And there's this running joke throughout the episode in which all the other boys of South Park, are, all they constantly say is, ooh, I'm not getting into this. I'm, I'm staying out of this. I'm staying out of it. And that seems to be our, our general response to disability is, ooh, I'm just going to stay out of this. I, I don't want to get involved in it. Uh, unfortunately, we need people to get involved in it. Uh, we need people to get involved in it because we need a majority of people saying that we believe that our world should be accessible. Uh, that pressure then needs to flow up to decision makers, whether it be municipal government, whether it be provincial or national government, or whether it be corporate uh, leadership, uh, administrations of organizations, nonprofits, businesses, similarly have a role to play here. Um, and so outside of the lay people, the other target is the decision makers, the people who actually have the power to do something. And in that sense, part of it is about trying to help them understand what the problem is, because that's a big issue, identifying the problem of accessibility. And number two, providing them with good answers on what to do differently. Because in my experience, historically, typically, our general gut instinct response to accessibility demands or um, and sort of lack of inclusion within our organizations, our gut instinct response tends to be a really bad response. Uh, it tends to be to put the pressure back on the disabled person to be the one to find the solution rather than accepting responsibility that we have societally to try to make things better for disabled people. There's a, a certain discomfort around it as well amongst able-bodied people that are, they feel an awkwardness to get into that conversation. I've, I've lived with it, like I said, to, for, for 40 years and, uh, still I'm not entirely comfortable having some of these conversations. This is actually something that I looked at in my first book, um, called, uh, the fantasy of disability. Uh, and, and this was trying to understand why 
representations of physical disability are so different and so strange in relation to actual lived experiences with physical disability. Uh, and for that, I turned to the work of, of psychoanalysis, uh, specifically uh, people like Lacan or Kristeva. Uh, and when I look at this question from that perspective, I think a really interesting or novel answer comes to the front, which is, I think that for a lot of people without disabilities, disability to them evokes an internal uh, fear. Um, it awakens within us a repressed anxiety around our own fragility, our own vulnerability. Uh, and so when somebody comes up to me on the street and says, oh, you're so brave, uh, it's so great to see you out, uh, I think what I'm actually hearing is not a congratulation of my own physical ability, but rather this is that reflection of the internal struggle with the reality that all of us live in these impermanent, fragile bodies, that disability is something that all of us will likely encounter at some point in our lives. And that fear of loss, that fear of the unknown, forces us to then try to repress and to push away, to disavow disability, to put a firm line between those who are not disabled, the, the normal people, quote unquote, and those who are disabled, the aberrant, uh, the dysfunctional. In that trying to get the word out and trying to uh, uh, evangelize for these causes, you found that there is some, some uh, a dichotomy even amongst the population of people with disabilities, where there was there was kind of two approaches to how people respond to it or how people are trying to create these solutions. A whole bunch of able-bodied people who don't fully understand, or uh, you know, a group of people with disabilities who don't necessarily agree on things or don't think we should have any able-bodied people in here because they they can't contribute. And 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 you did a lot of work to 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 build those two, build bridges between them. I think that's vital uh, in many ways. I think that we have to honor the fact that disabled people have expertise in their own lives and the things that they uh, need and want uh, in order to to live full, uh, accessible, inclusive lives. Uh, at the same time, we also have a whole lot of people right now that are in positions of power that do not have disabilities, that maybe don't have connections to disabilities. And from a, from a realist perspective or a pragmatic perspective, right now, our role or my work, I think, is about trying to bridge that gap, uh, to try to get that expertise from the disabled community into the hands of people that are making decisions right now, while also trying to build capacity within the disabled population so that hopefully we have more and more leaders with disabilities coming up through the system over the next decade. And we see some of that at the highest levels in Canada. Absolutely. I mean, when I was born back in the 80s, uh, I don't know that I would have ever thought that we would see um, parliamentarians uh, with disabilities. I don't know that we, I imagine we would ever see a lieutenant governor here in Ontario with a disability. Uh, those are all things that have happened uh, in the last 30 years in Ontario and in Canada. And uh, I think that that's only going to continue to increase because more and more disabled people are getting education, more and more disabled people are graduating post-secondary education systems, we're living longer, we're living better um, because of increases in accessibility and advances in technology. Um, disability is something that is going to become more and more naturalized over the next few decades because all of these people who we have for so long buried away inside institutions or privatized group homes, stuck within their home, unable to get out of the community, are now starting to find pathways out. And as more pathways emerge, more disabled people are going to be entering our society in a very public way 
And I think that's going to be amazing, great for our society. But it also means that as a society, as a community, we need to start working really hard right now to be ready for the wave that's coming. The wave in a largely aging population. I think when we talk disabilities, um, people have a preconceived notion of what that is in their mind, but don't think of an aging population or, uh, you know, people who are hindered uh, in transit as, as we've had a number of conversations. Somebody with two children and a stroller needs additional help. And, and that doesn't fit the natural conception of what disability is. But these are all things that need to be thought about in transit. And, and since you're pointing here to a really important um, ideological shift or a paradigm shift that we're really trying to push for in the world of critical disability studies, uh, which is that for a very long time, we've thought of things for disabled people as being special accommodations, right? As special access for people with special needs. What you've described, though, are a bunch of other needs that people have that aren't typically seen as being special. Uh, we don't think that a mother with a stroller has a special need. Uh, she has a need, but it's not necessarily special. And so I think that the bigger we can grow, grow this pool of what we presume to be naturalized, normal, expected, justified, valid needs that different people have based on the function of their minds or their bodies, the better off we're going to be in developing a designing system. Because rather than trying to say, how are we going to help, quote, the disabled? What we really need to start asking ourselves is, how are we going to become more accessible for people? And that access is going to have a lot of different um, vectors. It's not just going to be physical accessibility. It needs to be cognitive accessibility. It needs to be visual accessibility. It needs to be auditory accessibility. There are a ton of different ways that people need help integrated into public spaces. And I think as a society, we have the obligation to do so. Broadening the definition helps everybody. And my friend likes to, likes to quote, uh, design for the edge and get the middle for free. Exactly. If we have a broad yeah. enough definition, everybody is helped by that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a great example of this, uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I don't really watch any media anymore without subtitles. I love subtitles on my movies, on my TV. I always have closed caption on, uh, not because I have a hearing impairment, but I find I was missing things. I actually get a better, deeper appreciation for the script uh, as I'm able to actually read the words. I don't miss things. A lot of people are. Put the subtitles on. It's a, it's a more enjoyable experience for me personally. And this is an example of what we would call disability gain, uh, because this is a, an adaptive technology, a technology designed for people that aren't able to hear what is being said on screen. That also that has benefits for those who aren't using it as a quote accessibility or an inclusive design or adaptive technology, but rather are using it as another way to get access to the platform. Uh, so when we design for disabled people, we often actually enhance experiences from lots of different people for lots of different reasons, which may or may not have a diagnosis attached to it. So um, you're, you're coming back to your Mobilize March. Uh, that was 2008? 2008, yeah. So in the, you, you raised a lot of awareness during that. You, you spoke with a lot of people in cities and pol politics. And has, uh, has the trip uh, from London to Ontario gotten any better? Well, that is a really good question. Um, I will say, I mean, if we were to compare 
you know, right now today, 2023 to 2008, uh, things have certainly improved. Uh, there are more accessible cabs on the road in Ontario now than there were then. Uh, there are more accessible buses um, on the road now. In fact, I don't remember the last time I saw a non-accessible bus here in London, uh, whereas uh, there was, oh man, it was probably close to 50% of the fleet was still not accessible in 2008. Like, there was still a lot of inaccessible buses running around London in 2008. Uh, and so I think there's been some major step forward there. Uh, I think I've seen some real improvements on on train travel. Uh, I personally have had some really good experiences with Via Rail. It's become my personal preferred means to get around the province, to get around the country. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of a long train ride from Ontario to British Columbia, but uh, honestly, some of my favorite trips uh, that I've had have been the train ride from London to Montreal. Uh, I mean, Montreal is a fabulous city in and of itself, but that eight-hour train ride is is actually it's really nice. It's a really enjoyable time. Uh, you get some great scenery. Uh, it's a great place to relax. Uh, so I've had some good travel on on trains. Somewhere where we're really lagging, and it's not just a Canadian problem. This is a global uh, somewhere that that we are we are really falling behind uh, or have not made the appropriate moves forward in transit. In my opinion, is air travel. Uh, air travel remains uh, a, a huge issue. Uh, for people, particularly those with adaptive devices, uh, to the point that a lot of people I know, myself included, um, do not perhaps travel as much as we would like to out of a desire to avoid air flights. There's been some notable cases in the press recently with that as well. I, I, yes. I suspect some of the problems may stem from just trying to shove as much humanity into a small metal tube as possible for maximum profit. Yeah, and I think I, that's part of it. I think there are a bunch of factors. Uh, I think that there's a ton of factors that go back a really long time uh, within the airline industry. It was like uh, the decentralizing of services. Uh, the fact that, you know, when, when you go through an airport as a, as a consumer, you kind of only see your airline, right? You know, and you get to Pearson in Toronto, you're flying on, let's say, Air Canada, and everywhere you go, you see people wearing Air Canada shirts, and you make your way through the airport, you get on an Air Canada plane with a Air Canada pilot, and you fly off and you land wherever. Uh, and it feels like Air Canada did the experience. But actually, a lot of these employees are actually third party. Uh, there is a lot of the a lot of the steps that get you from the front door of the airplane port into the airplane and out the airport on the other side of the flight. You're interacting with a constellation of organizations, companies that have been subcontracted by a variety of companies, which makes this extremely complicated. So you can go to a major airline, like someone like Air Canada, for instance, and advocate and fight and change their, say, training policy. But are those training policies being streamed down through all of the subcontracted companies? That's a little bit harder to say. I mean, legally, they should be. But are they? That's a big question. And that's something that we've seen, actually, in some of the stories that have come out in the press, where there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between the airlines and some of these third-party vendors in which there are different expectations, different understandings, different ways of doing things, and that's causing some real problems. But for me personally, the biggest thing is speed. Most of the mistakes that I've experienced have been pressed because we are in such a rush, such a hurry to get the person from the waiting room into the plane and the plane off the ground. Uh, the margin of time that things happen at the airport is unlike any industry I've seen anywhere else. And it, I think that speed 
breeds the opportunity for mistakes because people are moving quick and they're trying to go as fast as they can and little things get missed. And, you know, something as small as forgetting to put a tag on my wheelchair has resulted in my wheelchair being sent to a completely different seat um, because the baggage handler didn't know what lane to put the chair in. Um, speed kills, but I think also speed can create a ton of accidents. Uh, and, and that's a baked-in systemic problem within the airline, which, unfortunately, I don't know that I'm smart enough to come up with a solution for. Turnaround time is a function of profitability hey, as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can see and read, you understand why they're trying to get as many people in and out and people with extra means. I, I think every time I'm in the airport, just to, you know, the call out for people who need extra time to board the plane lasts about three seconds before they ask for the, you know, the rich people or the frequent flyers or the, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't have a ton of time. No, no. I, I was traveling with um, my disabled mother, my pregnant wife, and my toddler son. And, uh, and, and we got three seconds to gather all of the gear and bags and the people. And, and then uh, suddenly there was a big line of, of older men, let's be honest, uh, standing Coming in front behind of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that pressure could be can be could be really intense. But then on the other hand, I think there are some real inefficiencies. There's a lot of weight in that. Uh, I mean, for myself personally, when you land, you know, you're rushed to get into the plane, you land, um, and there have been times where I've been sitting on a plane for twenty, forty minutes waiting for someone to come and help us to get off the plane on the other side. Uh, and so there's sort of both this like mass urgency to get things sorted, placed get the plane off the ground. Um, but then there's a not a comparable urgency from airlines to actually manage passengers out the other side, uh, whether it's getting you off the plane, getting you to your wheelchair, or when things go wrong, uh, appropriately and quickly responding to breakdowns of service, whether it is a destroyed wheelchair, a lost wheelchair, or some other problem that may, uh, may occur while flying. The response to those issues tends to be delayed sometimes days before you actually hear something back. You would you would fall in line with a lot of the passengers in the world who uh, don't feel that the airlines are necessarily hitting it out of the park with service. Not, a, not even close. Uh, not even close. I think there are very few things in our world where I am afraid to do the thing out of fear that something's going to happen to me. Uh, and I'm not talking about airline anxiety or flying anxiety. Um, I never, I'm not the type of person to get anxious about getting off of the airplane. I'm not worried it's going to crash. I'm not that kind of person. What I am worried about is whether or not I'm going to have my legs when I land on the other side. Am I flying around the world only to find that my wheelchair has been destroyed and my vacation is over before it's even started? That's the real fear. And I don't know of any other experience in this world that I have that same anxiety, that same doubt. I mean, whether it's getting on a train, whether it's going to the hospital, whether it's going to the movie or going to a Maple Leafs game, I've never been concerned whether or not my wheelchair is going to exist when I finish this experience. Airlines are the only ones that awaken this anxiety within me. And it's an anxiety that I think is shared by many disabled people, not just in Canada, but around the world. A little side note, you mentioned the Maple Leafs. Uh, you and I both, uh, well, you're working on the grounds of the University of Western Ontario. You're a graduate. I'm a graduate. 
of the university. And when I was going to school, uh, Elliot Friedman, the renowned hockey uh, analyst uh, in Canada, uh, he was the sports editor of the newspaper. And I hated him. I hated him because he always wrote about the Maple Leafs all the time. And being from Ottawa, I took exception to that. He was a Maple Leafs-loving fan. And uh, when I was in the airport that day, and and all the the frequent flyers all jumped in front of us in line. Um, one guy stood out and said, "Guys, guys, guys, let these people through. Come on, let's let's help them out here." And it was Elliot Friedman. No and, way. And I've loved him ever since. I want to tell him oh, that story that's one day. So cool. <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, so airplanes, not good. Uh, plane, uh, buses and trains, though, you say, have made some vast improvements. There's some gain. I mean, in terms of municipal buses, there's there's been some improvements. There's still work to be done. Uh, we still hear a lot of reports of uh, bus drivers turning off audible stops on their buses, for instance, uh, those call-outs that tell you where the bus is. Um, bus drivers will turn those off. I do not understand why that's even able to be done. Um, why, why would a driver have the ability to turn an accessibility feature on and off. That is baffling to me. Is, is there um, a reason they're, they're doing here? it? They just find it they, annoying? I, or? The reason, yeah, generally they find it annoying is my understanding. Uh, it's the most common the common reason. Um, and sometimes those audible stops aren't correct. Uh, I was on a bus uh, here in London, this was a couple of years ago, and um, the stops were wrong. They were off by about two stops. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of wonder, like, geez, like, what's happening to somebody who thinks, you know, they'll get it off at and that's the Richmond downtown London, uh, and they're actually being dropped off a couple of blocks north of London uh, downtown. Uh, you know that'd be pretty pretty confusing if you're uh, if you're a passenger with a visual impairment, and now you're trying to navigate a place that you actually don't know where you actually are, and you think you're one place and you're actually somewhere else. That that could be really dangerous. Um, one of the big problems we're having in Canada at the moment in terms of bus transit is the city to city buses. Um, for quite some time, Greyhound had. Um, accessible buses that you could pre-book. Problem that I had often was that I would pre-book it, I would go to the bus station the day of my trip, and oops, they forgot to order the proper bus. The bus that's here is not accessible. You're going to have to wait a day. Uh, this was something that happened fairly regularly to the point that I stopped taking on the Greyhound. It just wasn't a viable way for me to get around. Um, and that service, of course, was said it's kind of imploded. Um, that's been a bit of an issue. And then we have this great thing called the Go Train, uh, which if you're in uh, the GTA, uh, you have access to it, and it's a great sort of way to get around the, the greater Toronto area. But London, Ontario, uh, in southwestern Ontario, is just far enough that we are outside of the grips uh, of the Go system, uh, and so we don't have access to the Go, uh, the Go trains, or the Go buses. Uh, that's what the GTA area does. So unfortunately, we're not getting that benefit. Uh, we have to get to a closer city, whether it's so they like future Waterloo or uh, over to Guelph even better, um, which is also difficult to get to. Um, the uh, train station's not super accessible uh, in Guelph. And so um, you get a little trapped, right? You can feel a little bit stuck at times. When you start to look out at the world and you realize there are, you know, for most people, the idea of, of ripping down the 401 from London to Toronto, uh, that's a very simple thing for a lot of people. Um, people do it sometimes daily. Uh, there are people that commute by car for some bizarre reason from London, Ontario to Toronto to work every day. Don't know why you would do that to yourself. 
but for me and for other people like me, a trip to Toronto is actually a massive organized effort. And it's an organized effort, not because my needs are so unique or so extraordinary uh, that it requires major planning for medical reasons, but it's complicated because we have a ton of different systems that don't work very well together, that have their own different rules and structures and requirements that you need to sort of squeeze yourself into in order to swim up the current of the inaccessible system. And this is largely, in my opinion, because we built a transit system first, and then many, many years later, we decided we would try to adapt it after. And as we know from building a house, it's cheaper to build a house accessible from day one than it is to build it and try and renovate it. And so too are we now finding for our transit systems that old habits die hard and existing transit systems that are complicated, complex in their own ways are made even more complicated. And it's even harder to change when you start to try to adapt it to things like accessibility. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. To find out more, visit boldin.com. Can technology help with that? If you are there things that you point to that, that have been devised in the last 20 years that you say, wow, that's made a huge difference? I think there's a bunch of things. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm putting this out there, full disclosure. Um, I'm a bit of an AI doomer. Uh, not an AI doomer. I'm an AI skeptic. Um, I'm not, I'm not as convinced uh, that AI is, is the revolutionary world changing thing that people say it is typically. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, um, smoke and mirrors uh in the current world of ai in my personal opinion uh, i mean who knows ai will probably kill us all anyway i'm a fan of terminator so um that'll probably happen that's probably gonna happen but but i will say um that smart technologies computer processing and the ability to develop efficiencies in systems has actually had a pretty significant impact on some transit systems that are embracing the technology um, having a system that is able to smart schedule, to take a look at your resources, your schedule, types of rides that people are booking, and start to make more efficient pathways for these systems to run through, um, are meaning that things like paratransit services are able to do more with less um, by investing in technology. That, I think, has been a huge benefit because it's, of course, cheaper to buy uh, a technology system, a platform like that, that can think a little bit smarter than a human, see patterns that maybe we're not able to see and plan accordingly, cheaper to buy that system than it is to buy 10 more, you know, $500,000 buses uh, that only take four people per bus, uh, frankly. So I think that's one piece of technology that's made a, a huge, huge benefit. I think another technology that's, that's been really beneficial for me uh, is the smartphone. Uh, of having the ability to access information through my phone, particularly when things have gone badly in transit, has made uh, has made a world of difference. Uh, this means that I'm now able to look up customer service lines. I can find phone numbers of people that I need to talk to. It means that when I've landed in a foreign country where I don't know who a wheelchair repair person is, 
when I've landed and I have a wheelchair that's broken, I'm able to pop my phone up and I can start Googling right away to try to find access to information. Those are things that I really struggled with pre-smartphone. Uh, where I've landed, uh, I went to London, England. Uh, this is a while ago, pre-smartphone in hand. Uh, landed, wheelchair was destroyed. I'm at the airport. I get to the hotel. I talk to the people at the hotel. None of them have any relation or experience with wheelchairs. So I'm asking them, you know, who would typically repair wheelchairs here? And they said, well, I don't know. I don't know anyone who uses a wheelchair, you know? And so now we're flipping through the yellow pages, which of course there isn't a section for wheelchair repair uh, in the yellow pages. Um, so I think having access to, to that type of information at the tip of your fingers is amazing. And I think that as we evolve our implementation of technology within things like airports uh, and things like train stations and bus terminals, the sky is the limit uh, in terms of the types of benefit and the types of inclusive design we can do as we start to tether technologies within those spaces into the smartphone that theoretically, hopefully, most of our passengers have in their pocket. So for example, there's a company in the States who, um, it's an app that allows users to basically FaceTime with a person who will then be essentially their CNI guide. Uh, so they will then describe whatever the camera on the phone is showing, and they will then allow them to navigate. So many of the airports in the States have a contract with this company that allows anyone at those airports to use that app for free. So if you land at a new airport, you have a visual impairment, you don't know where you're going, you can pop online with this app and you will now have somebody in your ear describing you. Yep, walk forward 10 paces, departure or arrivals is on your left, click a left enter now, can guide you all the way through as though you had somebody on your arm. Uh, that is an incredible thing. It's like science fiction. Uh, if you think back 15 years ago, um, that is because of innovation happening within uh, smartphones, within Wi-Fi, uh, increases bandwidth over the uh, over uh, wireless internet. And that type of technology, I think, is just going to get better and just going to get smarter uh, as we start to learn things like AI and machine uh, machine learning and um, machine sight. We, we certainly believe you because we're the ones putting in those networks all around and on buses and on trains and and... This is a, an important aspect of it uh, to us, and particularly when you're when you're visiting another country, because you know, as a Canadian, either your phone's not going to work, or you're going to pay fifteen dollars for the first byte of data that you send, and uh, yeah, so these these networks are are critical. And I think that that a lot of people think about internet as merely uh, you, know, you know jumping on social media or playing games or going on Google and looking up stuff or, or going on email. Um, but data has a lot of uses. Some of them could be very scary and worrisome. Absolutely. But there are other data points that can really help us, whether it be things like wayfinding, uh, you know, having a, a really strong wireless network within a space allows you to have better understanding of where you are in a physical space as your, as your phone's connecting to it. Uh, there are some really amazing technologies through Bluetooth uh, that are you know little Bluetooth devices that are placed around buildings that allow for wayfinding, so that you know for a visual impairment you don't need somebody to be described at everything. Your phone is now popping into all the Bluetooth receivers, and it knows where it is. Essentially, it's able to pin off of them and know where where to lead you. 
um, getting the information into people's hands is powerful. Uh, and I think it's an under-discussed part of illustrative design and accessible design because having good access to good information for disabled people can fundamentally mean the difference between access and inaccess. Yeah. 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 I mean, knowing where the ramp is is like a critical question that, you know, I have a PhD and that's an that's a question I can't always answer. Um, where is the ramp? Where is the accessible bathroom? Uh, the number of times, the number of stations that the accessible bathroom is buried under a staircase or in the back hall uh, that's hidden away from public view. Um, it is shocking how hard it is to find an accessible bathroom or a unisex bathroom, despite the fact that they exist. Um, and it's not the type of thing that you can easily just grab somebody and say, hey, do you know where the, where the wheelchair bathroom is? Because uh, if they're not in a wheelchair, that's not the type of thing that they're looking out for, right? So being able to land, pop open an app that says, you are here, the wheelchair bathroom is 30 steps that way and to your left, oof. I mean, it's not just about making lives a little bit easier. Uh, it's about making the space accessible, making it actually functional. Because for a very long time, we've made stations functional for people that walk in a specific way, that have sight in a specific way, and that's here in a specific way. It's great for those people, but very quickly, those people are no longer becoming the majority of people that are going to be in these spaces. So if we can't change the space, then we need to adapt it. And we're not shy about having them walk for a very, very long distance these days either. I mean, that's my advantage with the electric wheelchair. Uh, I never get tired. So, uh, you know, I'm always sort of laughing as I, uh, I'm trucking along and everyone's like dragging themselves through the airport. Uh, and I'm just like, come on, try to keep up, walkies. Uh, let's go. <laughs> come on. You know, knees up. Let's go, folks. That's why I'm, you know, whipping around at, you know, 10 kilometers an hour in my wheelchair. Balling it from gate to gate. We've talked a little bit about airlines frustrate you. We've talked to them about some technologies that you think have helped immensely. Uh, any anything else jumping out? Actually, on on transit, just before we go there, um, you're currently on sabbatical. You're not kicking back and taking time off, so you've got a number of projects on the go. And you were going to tell me about one that you're working on in transit, as you sort of alluded to earlier uh, in the show. This question of, of accessible air flight has, has really sort of taken off here in Canada, um, largely due to the amazing reporting uh, by folks at CBC News uh, and CBC Marketplace uh, who started to dig into this. And uh, th this is a story that I got roped into uh, several months ago. Uh, first was sort of brought in as an advisor and then used as an expert. And I started commenting on it and started getting asked to be doing calls like this, to do shows. It's, talk it's, it's about frankly how we found you. Exactly. This is this has become a thing in the last few months, and the thing that I'm hearing a lot, no surprise, but it 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 made me take pause, is the number of emails, the number of phone calls that I've received over the last month and a half of folks who've reached out and said, "Hey, I heard you on CBC. I want to tell you my story," 
and I want to tell you my story, and I want to tell you my story. And it's gone to the point now where I'm realizing there is this enormous network of people across this country, this enormous group of us, who are all having very similar experiences that are having the same problems, the same challenges, and have the same desire to do something different, to try to improve the system, but don't know how, and are isolated from each other. Uh, the number of people that have reached out to me and said, I thought I was the only one that was going through this. It is so, it means so much to me to hear someone else say, yes, this is real, this is happening, and it's not okay. To have someone actually say, I'm sorry that happened to you. The first time some people have heard that is when they've been talking to me, which is shocking to me. And so to me, what I hear is a bunch of stories. I hear a bunch of stories that we're not doing a very good job of telling and a bunch of stories that I think we need to hear if we're going to actually do anything to improve these systems. Because at the moment, I think whether it's air travel, whether it's rail, whether it's municipal um, transit systems, there are a bunch of people in a room at the moment who believe themselves to be transit experts who have never set foot on a paratransit bus, that have never lost their wheelchair on a flight, uh, that have never gotten trapped on a train that broke down where there was no elevator to get them off the train. These are people that have never experienced what it's like to have a breakdown in transit because the system did not expect a disabled rider to come through. And so my hope over the next six to eight months is to start gathering these stories, to start pulling stories together and to do a better job of raising these stories up so that they can be learned from, not just as a means to say, look at how bad things are, but to give us a perspective into what is going wrong and to start making some suggestions on what can be done differently. So the project that I'm working on over the next uh, six to eight months is to start to gather these stories and uh, to start to record them and to start trying to incite a conversation within the disabled population about what we could be doing differently, about if they were in charge, how would you redesign these systems? What is the one problem that drives you up the wall that you would fix on day one if you were the CEO? And then let's take that information and let's start putting that into the hands of people that are making the decisions. Let's start showing them the real world experience. And let's leverage things like smartphones that have the ability to record video, to record audio, to start showing real things that are happening on the ground, undeniably. I think that is something that I could do over the next six to eight months to try to make a change here. So as communications experts, as uh, transit-centric developers, as lay people, um, how can we help? Well, I would say, number one, if a disabled person is telling you about a bad experience they had on transit, believe them. Uh, the number of times that I've heard from people in the last month, uh, the big story uh, being the gentleman who, I believe he was in Las Vegas, had to drag himself out of the, out of the airplane because they did not have a wheelchair for him. Uh, the number of people that I've heard who have said, I mean, that sounds a little fishy. There's no way the airline would do that to someone. Uh, believe him. There absolutely is a way. It 100% happened. It 100% has happened before. It 100% will happen again if airlines don't change. Uh, believe people 
when they tell you these horror stories. I think that there's also a need, though, for us to start to pull these stories and pull these opinions up and to start asking questions. Why aren't there more disabled people working within the transit space? What is the barrier that's preventing disabled people from moving up to a position where maybe they are in charge of a transit authority? Where are the disabled people in our municipal governments? Is there a reason why people don't aren't for city council? I'll tell you, maybe one of the reasons is if you don't have a paratransit service that can get you out into the community, that can get you to city council meetings, it'd be very difficult to be a city councillor if there is not a wheelchair service that will get you from home to city hall in time for your meeting. I think that we need then ultimately to take personal responsibility to say that we need to be voices for accessibility, whether or not it benefits us. That means demanding more of not just the people above us, but also demanding more of ourselves. Asking how can we help? What can we do to make things better in our role right now? Part of that is education. Part of that is changing rules. And part of that is understanding the importance of getting out of the way. One question that I always ask people, and whenever they talk about how, well, the policy doesn't allow us to do that, or past practice says that this isn't the way that we do it. I always ask myself, are you defending people right now? Or are you defending a policy? Are you defending paper? Because if you're defending paper, then you're on the wrong side of the fight. Let's start defending people. Paper can change. People shouldn't have to. Very moving. Very uh, thought-provoking. Um, so on a, on a day-to-day basis, how can we advocate better? I think number one, uh, and this is, I'm a, I'm a big sort of uh, political dude. I like politics. I'm always interested <laughs> in it. Uh, global, municipal, it's, uh, yeah, it's so fascinating. Uh, I, I'm really into it. So I think number one, talk to politicians about it. You know, when, when a city councilor comes by your door on the door looking for your vote, ask them what they're going to do to enhance successful transit in your city. When you show up at, the, at Pearson and you have a chance and you're sitting there and you're talking to the to the gate agent or talking to somebody at the at the baggage, ask them what they've done today to try and make the place a little bit more accessible. When you get on the phone and you're talking to Air Canada or you're talking to Via Rail, at the end of the thing, when you have to do those surveys, ask them what they're doing this year to try to make things better. Hold them accountable. Ask questions. Because the more people are asking questions, the more likely things are going to start to change. Right now, I think accessibility that's pushed to the back burner because it's presumed that only a minority of people care about it. I don't think that's the case. But we need to show that people care, that people want it, that people demand it. Do How much do these transit uh, issues, you, you obviously you teach a, a broad spectrum of issues, but how much do the transit issues factor into your classroom? Yeah, so I, uh, because I have this sort of basic interest in, in transit, <laughs> and uh, to me, you know, in my opinion, I think uh, there are lots of vectors um, of the disability rights movement. There's lots of places, lots of battlefronts, uh, fronts of the war, let's say, against ableism. Uh, transit is my front. That's where I went to fight. Uh, it's a place that I have learned a lot about. Uh, it's a place that I've studied. Um, and so that focus then obviously trickles down into uh, the work that I do in the classroom. And so uh, it is not rare in my upper-year courses uh, where students will be engaging in case studies uh, that are often transit-focused, 
uh, whether it be uh, defining better paratransit systems or trying to engage in these questions of policy failures um, on things like airlines. Uh, I love using those types of cases, um, partly because I find them really interesting, but also because I think that equipping students with knowledge on not just how to engage differently in questions of inaccessibility, how to make places accessible better. Um, I think that it's also important to equip students with understanding about transit systems, because it's something that they experience every day of their life, probably, or most days anyway. And it's probably something that they should consider getting involved in. Uh, this could be a space that they could make a real difference by taking the knowledge that they're developing uh, in our disability studies program and bringing that lens into a transit organization. Oof, that could change everything. Can I jump in, Chris? I've got a question. Yeah. We like we jump to the the bad things very easily. And the media obviously loves the story that they love the horror story when it happens. Is there anybody or like other examples or stories or places where actually brilliant design that's been designed around somebody with accessibility need actually gets shared and amplified? Where the thing that's been designed for the person in the wheelchair helps the mother with with a stroller and shopping? Because I think like we don't do a very good job of telling those stories. Typically not. Uh, and typically the way that I think journalism tends to approach disability um, is from this sort of oppression perspective. They like to tell stories of disabled people getting oppressed, uh, or they like to tell stories of disabled people overcoming. Uh, and so when there are typically that sort of more positive stories about disability, in my experience, uh, it tends to be a, a little off. Uh, it tends to be really about what we would call the super crip, uh, stories about disabled people who are seen as not being disabled because of the incredible thing that they were able to do, or perhaps the marginal thing that they did, uh, which they weren't presumed to be able to do. Uh, so this is, you know, disabled man graduates university, uh, headline news type thing. Um, but where I think we do hear these stories, uh, where I hear most of the good news about disability and transit and travel uh, tends to be on the internet. It tends to be through social media. And tends to be through this constellation of disabled bloggers that exist out there, travel bloggers that have disabilities, who are actually going out and testing systems. They're going out all over the world, trying to travel places, and then they're reporting back to the community the things that did and didn't work from that for that. Uh, and so it's things like that, for instance, that I've heard uh, that you know I've heard that KLM is apparently a really lovely airline to fly on. Uh, I haven't personally gotten the experience yet, but. It's a name that comes up a lot when I go online and you hear people talking about airlines. That's when I hear quite regularly from disabled people saying, you should check this one out. I had a really good experience. Are there any countries or regions that have nailed it? Ooh, I mean, I, if I was speaking very generally, I've had much better experiences in um, uh, European Union affiliated countries, uh, generally speaking. Um, I think that the, the legislative... Uh, structure of the EU has allowed for some progress in accessibility that we are way behind on uh, in Canada. Uh, we are we don't have the same rules or structures, uh, so I've had some pretty good experiences in Europe, uh, which is actually quite surprising. When one of the major complaints in Canada and the states is, "Well, these are old buildings; we can't adapt old buildings," and uh, I think Europe, I think Europe might have us on. And everything there is older than Canada. <laughs> yes, precisely. I think they might have us beat uh, a little bit on that. And yet somehow, uh, you know, and, and this isn't to say, you know, I've definitely ridden on some sketchy, sketchy uh, um, ramp 
Uh, in, in parts of Europe, but uh, but they've gotten me in and we've made it work uh, in a way that I never was able to in Canada. Um, so that's pretty good experiences in, in Europe. Um, I would say in America, things would be really hit or miss. Uh, there are some parts of the States that are uh, really accessible, incredibly accessible. Uh, there are other parts that are um, no different or perhaps even worse than parts of Canada, depending on where you go. Uh, and that tends to be really an, an urban-rural divide uh, in a lot of ways. Like many of the kids in the U.S., um, there tends to be a real big urban-rural divide there, uh, where it's, it's a little bit harder out in the sticks, uh, as it is here in Canada as well. We've got a lot of sticks in Canada. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> we sure do. I think even our big cities are kind of like uh, out in the sticks too, compared to a lot of the states. So, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of suburbs. We've talked about how we built our cities wrong. So Absolutely, it's a it's a transit issue. It's a it, it's an issue that yeah. uh, affects a lot of areas of our societies, uh, particularly with somebody with disabilities. And I think this is an example of why I think decision making is so important, um, because decisions were made a very long time ago that we are now still grappling with, that we're still forced to live within the structure of. And that is almost impossible for us to try to renovate, to try to fix. Now, one of the most profound things that I heard, this is a long, long time ago, um, talking with uh, an advocate, a disability advocate, and they said, I'm not so concerned about the building that was built 100 years ago. I'm concerned about the five buildings that we're going to build today that are not accessible. Because... Mistakes have been made. The problem is we haven't learned from that. And we just continue to compound the mistake by making new ones over and over and over and over again. I honestly feel that if we were to shift our thinking and focus on making fully accessible today, we would be in a way better place in five years. The problem is we get caught. We get caught in this desire of wanting to do a little bit now, wanting to do a little bit about the other stuff, try to do a little bit in the future. We try to parse it out and we never ask ourselves, what if we stop making mistakes today? How might that change things? And I think ultimately, in a decade, I mean, it's like compound interest, you know? Uh, it's just going to keep paying back at bitter and bitter rates every day that we stop making mistakes. Some of those things are so hard to push through, though, just for lack of or anything else other than resistance to change. I remember Vancouver changed their their building codes so that don't put doorknobs on anymore. It's levers. Use levers. And even when you you know an able-bodied person is carrying seven grocery bags, it's way easier to get into the house with a lever than a doorknob. Absolutely. But yet that still made national headlines. I think one one actually interesting thing about that um and, and speaking about legislation and things like built-in codes, I think that there is a slow growing movement of municipalities, but more so organizations, organizations like universities uh, that have started to say, okay, the building code is the minimum bar. This is the like, thou shall build at least this so that people don't die in the building. But what if we had a higher design standard? What if we had a higher requirement that we held ourselves to? Not because of a legislative demand, but because of a moral obligation, a moral obligation to our community. Uh, and so there is a number of universities now who have designed internal design standards, uh, sometimes called FADs, 
uh, facilities, uh, facility accessibility design standards. Uh, there's some different names depending on where you go, but um, BADS documents is a common name for them, uh, in which they have tried to go way beyond to not just build an accessible building per code, but to build a building that is going to be accessible in ways that are intentional, that are designed, and are built that way whether or not there's a demand for it today, because there might be a demand for it tomorrow. And it's better for us to do it now than to have to retrofit it 10 years down the line. And I think this is something that I would love to see more corporations embrace. Uh, you know, Imagine if a big box like Walmart were to pick up a design standard and say, we're going to build the most accessible retail operation ever in the world. And we're going to ensure that every single outlet of ours is built to an accessible standard, unlike anything anyone's ever seen. Think about the downstream effects that could have in the retail space. Uh, if you have a giant organization who has money to burn on this type of thing, that could have a huge ripple effect on the industry. And even better, that's a standard that could then be used by another corporation. Someone else could then pick up that standard and apply that good work to their own spaces, which then makes it cheaper for them to do it down the line. I'd love to see that happen, and I would love to see them make a big splash of it to get that publicity out. But I long for the day that that can just happen and nobody has to make any news about it. Yeah, It's absolutely. just done. Just accepted. It's just understood. Thank you very much for your time, Jeff. I really appreciate yeah. having you on. And uh, and you've uh, certainly um, enhanced my perception on these things. And I'd love to work with you. As you're getting this feedback and, and the people with their stories, I'd love to connect with you and... and yeah. See how we can how we can help to turn some of those into improvements. The chat. Absolutely. Part two. Yes. Part two coming yes. soon to the pod. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Connected Commute Podcast from Bolden Networks. Follow or subscribe on the platform of your choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at Bolden.com.